0: Father, we do thank you and praise you that Christ is our cornerstone, that he is the Lord of all, and he is good, and Lord, it's so good to be able to adore him. Lord, I pray that we would be a Christ-adoring church, that we would honor and magnify and glorify Jesus. Thank you for our children's ministry. Thank you for our worship arts ministry and many other worship ministries that are going on right now, even as we speak, in order for us to sit quietly here and listen to your word. We pray that we would hear your spirit and be changed and touched, and that we would grow in you. In Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said, amen. Welcome here. My name is Pastor Jeremy. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Mark. We have a couple more sermons left, and that's on purpose because we're going through This series, all the way up until Easter, and it's only a couple weeks away. We pray and hope that you're thinking about who you'll invite to our Easter breakfast. And hopefully, that's an unchurched or unsaved or, you know, non church going friend that you can encourage to come along with you for this special day. And uh, we want to be very intentional about proclaiming that which is most important and most special to us. So please. Pray for those opportunities. Maybe you say, oh, I don't have any you know, opportunities. Pray that God will bring one uh, in front of you. And maybe he will. Who knows what will happen. So pray for them. And if he brings the name to mind while you're sitting here, even today, just write it down and continue to pray. Uh, we're looking at chapter 15, verse 16 and following. But before we get there, I just want to remind you, because it's been over the course of a few years, we've actually done 52 sermons thus far On the book of Mark. And uh, long ago, we started with this idea in Mark chapter 1, verse 7. Here's a quick slide of it, that Jesus is the one who is mightier. This is how he's introduced at the very beginning of the series. This is when we started it. We called it Mr. Incredible. And that grew old after a little while. But the idea was that Jesus is mightier. Jesus is stronger. And Mark is this action-packed gospel. It's almost like a comic book. I mean, if you had graphics it'd be whiz boom bang pow you know jesus shows up on the scene and immediately as mark so often says immediately he's confronted by the devil he's led out into the wilderness by the holy spirit the holy spirit doesn't lead him into glory right away the holy spirit doesn't lead him into comfort and the perfect life now the holy spirit leads him into the wilderness to be confronted by the devil so remember how do we pray Lord, not your will but mine. Lord, not my will but yours. And this is how it starts at the beginning of the book. Jesus is led into the wilderness. And he's confronted by the devil. And it's a big fight. And the devil is doing everything he can to destroy this guy. Because he knows if Jesus succeeds, then it's over for him. And yet, Mark, as he so often does, leaves out many of the details. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking out. And what does that tell us, church? Jesus wins. Exactly right. Because if Jesus lost, he wouldn't have come walking out. If Jesus lost, he would be dead. Mark chapter 15. Beginning in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with mirth, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You would who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, to one another saying, "He saved others; he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe." And those who were crucified with him also, even they reviled him. It was the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, me, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling on Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Did Jesus win? I thought, Pastor, you've been saying this whole time that Jesus won. What is this? Doesn't look like victory to me. This looks like crucifixion and shame and mocking and derision and losing. This does not look like a win. In fact, if you review the verbs throughout this paragraph, You'll see some very interesting words. I highlighted them in my Bible just to make them pop. But listen to these as I read through them. And you'll hear them later when you read it again too. The soldiers led, clothed, crowned, saluted, kneeled, mocked, stripped, crucified. The passersby derided. The chief priests mocked those who were crucified, reviled. You have derided, mocked, reviled. It's a total sham. Everything happening here is for the sole purpose of shaming Jesus. Many times, modern portrayals, they'll they'll focus on the cross and they often get into the blood and guts and gore. But if you read the New Testament, that is not the focus. Focus of the New Testament is not on the physical torture of the crucifixion, but on the emotional and relational and the spiritual. That's actually an encouragement for us today. Many of us who live in the West have never experienced physical persecution. And we think, oh, we're just, we got it so easy, blah, blah, blah. I think we face just as many battles as anyone, anywhere. The only difference is our battles are spiritual and mental and, and emotional. Not always physical. Sometimes they can be. I don't deny that. But so often the war we fight is the battle within And you look at this section, and it's all about the mocking, the derision, the accusations. And then you go back to the original beginning of this gospel, and you think about what is at play here. And again, the devil is at work. Christ is at work, and the devil is at work. And the devil is diabolo, dia through Bolo to throw, he is the accusation thrower or hurler. And just like he's done from the very beginning, he is standing there accusing God's people, accusing Job, accusing you, accusing me and accusing Jesus. And you've seen his accusations build up all throughout this trial, this process where everything said has been slander and false. And Jesus never ever even defends himself. And he sits there before the king, or Pilate, the governor. And he sits there before the Sanhedrin. And it just piles up and piles up. And it hasn't stopped. Even now, in the moment where he is bleeding out and suffocating and dehydrating and waiting for the moment when he can finally release his spirit. Even in these very last moments, he's still being shamed and mocked. Over and over again. Slander, striking, spitting, mocking. Look who's doing it, everyone. There's really no one who's not. You got soldiers who sort of represents one group of people. You got the chief priest and the scribes who represents another group. even have the people on the crosses themselves as if they're any better, mocking Jesus. How many times are you in a situation where the person mocking you is doing the exact same thing they're accusing you of? (laughs) You're like, man, that's kind of funny. Well, there they are on the cross, and they're mocking him. What? What are you talking about? You're a murderer. You're a thief. <laughs> and you're mocking Jesus. And there's one group that I scratch my head and think, oh, man. So I just started about murderers and thieves and soldiers. I think this group might be the worst. <laughs> you know, when people, oh, that's the worst. <laughs> This might be the worst. And here's why. In verse 29, there are those who pass by. Those who just pass by. Here's the king of the Jews, the only begotten son of the living God, the king of the world, the founder of creation, hanging on a cross, and somebody walks by. How can you walk by that? what more important thing ever has happened and you just walked by? At least notice, pick a side, do something, but walk by? They're on their way to the grocery store. Maybe they got a game that afternoon. There's a sale at so-and-so's. There's something really important on their minds at that time. They just pass by. The king of the world hanging on the cross, and we pass by. Well, I've done that. It's happened to me. My guess is it's happened to you too. There's something really important in your life, and I'm not saying it's not, but it's so easy to get distracted with our daily chores and business that I think the devil is just as effective through busyness, as he is through front-on, full-on assault. He can distract you and not let you know what's going on. He's got you. And here are these people who have just passed by. See ya. I'm busy. I'm on my way. Got stuff to do. Yeah, 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 Jesus, some teacher, rabbi, whatever. I got this figured out. I'm okay. Whew. Whoa, watch out. Don't pass by the cross. Do not pass by this, no matter how ugly, no matter how unpleasant, no matter how difficult. Do not pass by. We want to in our evangelism perhaps say, oh, Jesus, 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 he's so nice, he's so fuzzy, he's so furry, you'll like him too. There's a cross here. And it's a stumbling block. And it's for real. Because this is how ugly sin is. This is how bad God hates sin. This is how terrible what we've done is. This is how majestic Jesus is. There is a cross. And you don't have Christianity. If you don't have a cross. There is no such thing. It's absolutely necessary and fundamental to our faith. We cannot leave it out. Jesus took our place. And here's the encouragement for today. Jesus took our shame. Last week we talked about him being the substitute who takes the sin as the Lamb of God, making atonement and making us one with God. But he doesn't just take our sin, he takes the guilt and the shame and all the bad feelings associated with it. They are hurling it upon him now and he's eating it up and sucking it in. And every bit of shame that the devil could muster, he throws at Jesus at that very moment and none of it sticks. That is why the great ironic statement of the New Testament... Colossians 2.15 says this. He dishonored the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He shamed them. He made them a joke. He made them a laughing stock. Here they are trying to accuse him, but he's actually winning and beating them. In this very moment, when they are doing their worst, he is doing his best. The crucifixion not only proclaims God's eternal love, it proclaims his rule. What? Pilate said was so true he didn't even realize it. That's what's so funny about many of the things in Mark. When the high priest says, "Yeah, it's better that one person die for the sins of the people," or this or that, Mark always assigns these profoundly theological statements. To these people who have no idea what they're saying, and such is true of Pilate as well. When he hangs Jesus up, he puts a cross, a marker above the cross, says for everyone, everywhere to see, "This is the King." And what he has written has written, and that will never change. Jesus has been lifted up. And that's the great irony of this book. The eternal plan, the whole purpose of God the Father do you know what it is? To lift him up, to lift up the Son. And this cross is part of the process. He's just started. This is like the springboard, the diving board, the thing that's going to throw him even further. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father had planned for God the Son to die on the cross. This is not an accident. This is not plan B. This is not, oops, oh, shoot, I've got to do something. What's going to happen? I know, uh, uh, I'll send Jesus. No. From the very beginning, before he even came, God had planned for this. And that's why over and over again throughout this book, Jesus is constantly reaffirming this plan. I tried to point it out as we were going through and say, hey, look, here's a prediction. Hey, look, here's another prediction. Hey, look, here's another prediction. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, I will be betrayed. And then he will be mocked. And it will be spit upon. Jesus says this. You can look at, you look at the rest of Mark and see. He predicts the shame. He predicts the crucifixion. But you know what he always predicts alongside of it? The resurrection. Every single one of these includes the resurrection. Because he knows the plan. He was there at the very beginning before the foundation of the earth when it started. And he was part of the plan. Willingly submitting himself to the perfect will of the Father to exalt the Son. And this, people, is the overarching purpose of God. This rules over everything. Nothing that is ever done can overcome this. God's purpose is to exalt Jesus Christ. You can't do anything to overpower that purpose. Even Satan himself... When he thought he had won, when he had killed the only begotten Son of the God, actually loses. These predictions now are so important, not because, oh wow, cool, look, Jesus guessed it. No. But because these things are going to nourish his people. It will nourish you and me. When they see the Son of God living and then dying and no longer breathing, One would hope at some point they would remember something that he said. Like, hey, guys, this is going to happen. And yet we know they forget and they're still surprised. And then we're also comically and ironically related to that. We go about our daily business. We pass by the promises of God. We forget to ask forgiveness. And stuff happens. We're like, oh, man, why did this happen? Then we look back at the promises and we say, oh, yeah, Jesus predicted this. Maybe we should listen. It provides confidence for his disciples. It provides a way back. And it nourishes them by taking their shame. Imagine Peter. You know, he's betrayed the Son of God. He's in shame. He's in hiding. He's afraid. He's in a bad place. And maybe each of us don't want to necessarily admit it. But more than likely, at some point in our lives, we've been in a bad place. Maybe we haven't betrayed the only begotten Son of the living God. But we feel bad. We're in a dark spot. And we don't like it. This is the way back. To understand, not only did Jesus take your sin, he took your shame. And when Peter is forgiven, he can look back on this incident and discuss it with Mark and he can think about all the shame that he had from betraying the only begotten Son of the living God. And then he can take that shame and put it on Jesus. And Jesus takes it and crucifies it on the cross. And then we can say, yes, I was crucified with Christ. But it's not I who live now, it's him in me. Therefore, Romans 8, verse 34 says this, we've put all our shame on Jesus, if he took it and none of it stuck, who then is to condemn us? Satan tried, he can't. He gave everything he had to Jesus, and Jesus overcame. Therefore, I'm going to hide behind him. I'm getting behind Jesus and letting Satan spew all the venom he wants right at me, but I'm going to be behind him. And therefore, look at what it brings in. The same things that were predicted multiple times over and over again in Mark Jesus is the one who died, was raised, is at the right hand of the Father and is interceding on our behalf. He's interceding for me, for me and my sin and my shame. He's pleading, Jesus is pleading for me based on what he did on the cross. And every single one of those things is in there. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. And the intercession. See the lifting up of the son of God. Is one continuous act. From the crucifixion. To the resurrection. To the ascension. To the intercession at the right hand of God. God's eternal purpose has always been the same. Lift him up. Get him up. Get him up. We have to ask the question. How are you lifting him up in your life? Are you elevating Christ? Does he get glory from who you are and what you do? Does that bring him glory or does that bring him shame? Have you given him your shame? Are you holding on to sin or something he doesn't want you to? Are you keeping it close to yourself and not giving it over? Jesus wants to take that. He didn't go to all that work for nothing. Give it to him. Let him take your place. Let him take your shame. Let him take you. Here is... King of the Jews. And now he has become what another gospel writer calls the crucified one. Now for those grammar nerds out there, and I know there's one or two, this is what's called a perfect passive participle. No big deal. What it means is the crucified one, it's a tense That says not only did it happen. If it would have just happened and been done with that would have been heiress. But this is perfect. And so what that means is it happened and it has continuing results. Into the future. In the present. Forever and ever. What happened never is undone. Jesus is always the crucified one. Now here's a little secret. I grew up in a church tradition That would on occasion, maybe, just maybe, take pot shots at other traditions. (laughs) And what they did was they would say, hey, look, Jesus is resurrected. He's not on the cross. Don't ever portray Jesus on the cross. That's a sin because that's not where he's at right now. Jesus is resurrected. True. Jesus is not on the cross. True. Jesus is glorified and exalted and at the right hand of the Father. He didn't get stuck He came down, he was buried, he was raised, and now he is in heaven. But even in heaven, even in the eternal city, do you know what he will be called? The crucified one. One author by the name of Scott Harrell says it like this. He says, the most glorious title that Jesus has ever given is the lamb who was slain. That's what he's called in heaven. I want to call him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Alpha and the Omega and the Mighty Great I Am, which is all true. But they never, ever, ever forget. He was crucified. He bled and died. And from that moment forward, for ever and ever, Jesus will always be marked by the crucifixion will never be undone. He took our sin. He took our shame. He destroyed it and threw it away as far as east is from the west. That's the victory you see on the cross. Then Romans 8, 1 will tell us, therefore, because of that, therefore... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he did it. It is finished. It's done. Perfect passive passage, possible. it's completed, it's over and forever and ever because he is who he is, we can be who we are. But Jesus is not Jesus if he's not the son of God, if he's not perfect, if he didn't die, if he didn't raise, then it's all a wash. But because he is and all is well. Just like Christ was raised from the dead, guess what will happen to those who are in him. We too will be raised. It all follows from what Christ did. The devil tried everything he could to condemn Jesus. and listen to me now, He will try. Everything he can to condemn you. But if you are in Christ, he can not. Why? Because Jesus won. Father, we thank you. Praise you for your son, Jesus, the mighty one. Who overcame Satan and took our guilt and took our shame. I praise you, Lord, that he died on the cross, not the way I would want it to go, but the way you planned. And I praise you that he is the perfect lamb of God, the lamb who was slain, creator of heaven and earth, maker of all that is. From before the foundation of the world, you knew this and you did it and you won. Lord, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.